0: This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Hey everybody, today's guest is Jeff Rickley, lead vocalist for the post-hardcore band Thursday from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Together we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite single Signals Over the Air taken from their 2003 debut major label album, War All The Time. Jeff mentioned that the track was the last song penned for the album. They had the record recorded, but the label felt they were missing a single. The band reconvened to a farm in Massachusetts to hammer out a few more songs. Jeff made it sound like this session was more like a party, with the band imbibing not only with recreational substances, but cake. Yes, cake, which Jeff said a new one was set out for the band each day to devour. Producer Sal Villanueva was brought back to oversee the record, and the results are amazing. This is arguably one of Thursday's finest moments. And to celebrate, the band is out on the road in the United States, playing the War All the Time album in its entirety. Super cool. So for all this and some mascara washed away by windshield wiper blades, stick around. a podcast hey hey have you heard Krista makes a podcast Take us back if you can. You know, you guys were making a lot of noise around 2003, when this record, War All The Time, came out. And it was your debut on Island Records. And it seems like, man, everyone was getting signed during this time. But You know, for me, it was an exciting period. Were you excited about uh, the, the prospect of being on a major and, and getting to a wider audience or, you know, because there's a lot of interesting things going on here. You know, here here you're on a major, but, you know, you went with Sal Villanueva to produce the album, this hardcore kid. You know, you didn't go get some big Hollywood producer. So what were your feelings uh, during this time in the writing uh, of Signals Over the Air?
1: I didn't like a lot of what was on major labels at the time so it wasn't like a super exciting moment for me um it felt more like a necessity to have to go from victory to island we weren't super happy um there's you know a lot of conflict a lot's been written about that and spoken about that but yeah so it was kind of like you know we tried to make the best of the situation end up on a label that we liked but for us we had already like blown up bigger than we had ever expected you know on victory selling something like four hundred thousand records was such a right strange novelty at the time that we were kind of like well let's keep it going we're not like trying to step into the radio suddenly or become like some media darling you know what i mean we just wanted to keep kind of doing what we were doing and um that's why it was like yeah we're gonna go with sal again we're gonna we're not gonna try and write like a big radio banger or something um you know, so, so it was just kind of, yeah, it, it felt like a very naive position to be in. And I'm glad that uh, we were that naive because I love that record. And I think if we had been aware of all the pressure that was all around us, we probably would have like caved and done something different.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think it goes to show the, the strengths of the band by this time. I mean, you know, you'd been a band for a while. You had a lot of shows under your belt, and that translates to the studio. The sounds uh, and, and the tones and everything are, are awesome on this. But it's not an overly glossed major label record.
1: Yeah, this is definitely like when I think about all of our records, this is the one that shows that we were like a monster of a live band at that point. You know what I mean? Like we were, we had been on tour for two years for Full Collapse straight and. You know, we went into the studio being like now we know how to play. You know what I mean? We've been on stage every night like we're like a machine right now. Like let's mm-hmm. get in there and hit them hard, you know. It was kind of, it was kind of the the philosophy behind the record and it's how, you know, how the record opens with this sort of one two three punch of like, you know, more more of the heavy live type stuff.
0: And do you recall if you guys were on the 2003 Warp tour cuz we were. Were you on that year? Um I know we did Warp tours together. I was
1: sort of on that year. In 2002, when we were on the whole Warp Tour, I had started dating one of the production people, and she was working all summer. So I was visiting her and and, and traveling on her bus for um, a part of that summer.
0: Ah, gotcha. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, one thing that uh, really struck me about you guys is, is is Tucker Rule, your drummer. Yeah. And I got to spend I got to spend a full five weeks with him on one of the last uh, Yellow Card uh, tours in 2015, and uh, d- just a monster. And what yeah. what's going on here rhythmically in this song, and what you put together? Uh, this song's awesome.
1: Yeah. I I remember, you know, all the heads of uh, Def Jam, because Island and Def Jam were like uh, one label at that point, they still had their like people that this person was more an island person, this person was more a Def Jam person. But like Kevin Lyles and, and all the like, the Def Jam guys, you know, Russell Simmons and whatever, they like came to find me when we handed in the record. And they were like, and that first song, that's a drum machine, right? And I was like, No that's our drummer. And they could not (laughs) believe it. They were like, that's a person doing that. And they were so like blown away. They couldn't believe that for the Warforce drowning was like a person playing one track. That's the other thing they were like, so it's two tracks. And I was like, no, that's a live performance. Like there's no edits. That's him playing. And they were like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, he's just got such a, a great style. Uh, was this song written specifically for the war all the Time record, or was this a holdout from the previous record? And uh, can you take us back? Do you remember writing uh, signals over the air?
1: I think that was maybe the last song written for war all the time. We <laughs> had yeah, we had interesting. Well, yeah, it was a really strange thing. We had finished the record. We had handed it in and the label were like this record's amazing and there's no singles and we were like did you think we were a band that wrote singles you know what i mean like (laughs) we don't what are you talking about
0: (laughs) they're telling you in one breath the record's amazing but then they're saying there's no singles singles
1: yeah and we were like okay well this is kind of the record we wanted to make and they were like all right do you want to go back into the studio for a little bit we were like what and our producer you know sal and tim they were like look you know we don't have to go write singles but like if you want to we'll rent like a really nice studio upstate that the rolling stones built they have a live-in chef and just like if the label wants to give you a bunch more money like just go have some fun you know what i mean like just take it like so we went up there and we were like it, it's at a barn is this uh long studios you know sort of famous mm-hmm. studio and um we just went up there and had a blast and and like did did drugs and you know it was just (laughs) it was just like we just had fun and we ended up writing signals over the air division street and this song brought to you by a falling bomb none of them still really like breakout singles or anything but three of the strongest songs on the record so we're kind of like that was a great idea you know what i mean after we thought because we were like the record's done we're not going to add anything to it and that really was, like, so freeing.
0: Well, and I know it was on commercial radio in, in 2003, our peers who, who was on. And this, again, the, the production isn't overly glossed. And this yeah. song isn't, to me, any different than most of your catalog. So it's not like yeah. you guys, you know, did the dreaded sellout thing.
1: No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I guess, like, all three of those songs are marginally more on the, like, approachable side for Thursday. But it's a, pretty, it's a pretty small difference, even to the point where, you know, when we put out the record and it was getting like a lot of hype and it was like a top 10 Billboard album and stuff, we uh, went into Alternative Press, you know, and had so many friends there. And Mike Shea was like, wow, it's so brave of you guys to put out a major label record with no hooks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I wow. I saw like all the writers and like Jason, everybody just be like, oh, uh, what are you, what are you, Mike? <laughs> What, there's hooks all over this record. What are you talking about? We were like, damn, shots fired. You know, what I mean? no hooks. <laughs> but I know what he means. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, yeah, it's not a clear appeal to a radio audience or anything like that.
0: Oh Yeah, they're looking for the hitchy over the head yeah, pop hook. Yeah. And they, but that, that was never what you guys were about. Yeah. And
1: I think like even our idea of what a hook is, is just so alien to, you know, the people who were were programming radio at the time. So, you know, I listen to things like Gang of Four and Fugazi and I'm like, it's hook after hook after hook. It's all hooks. But I also understand that like a radio guy hears it and is like, it's noise. <laughs> You know, you're like what are you? Tell you? It's, it's dissonant. What are you talking about? So. Uh,
0: it's so subjective, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you know, I kind of got this smile on my face a little bit ago when you said, "Yeah, it was the last song for the record." You know how many times I've heard that <laughs> on here? It's always, it's always like we got a record in the can. It's like the pressure's <laughs> off. Hey, you want to go up to a studio in Massachusetts and record in a barn? Sure. And the next thing you know, you're gifted with this song that's uh, arguably one of one of your biggest uh, biggest songs. It is amazing, and even this
1: stuff that we took off the record is stuff that we loved and that ended up on other records. You know what I mean? It's not like it didn't feel like we had some fat that needed trimming. You know what I mean? It's like we wrote a bunch of stuff that we really loved and then we're kind of like, yeah, it flows a little better. Like the record is still, even with those three more open songs is still an incredibly like dark, claustrophobic and angry record. So those became like the dark, claustrophobic angry songs on some of our later records, one of them on the next record and one of them on the record after that. So like, it was kind of like, we got that, we've got that vibe covered with war all the time. We don't need any more dark, angry, claustrophobic (laughs) songs.
0: (laughs) Well, I I get it. You know, and I agree with you. I I think there's hooks all over this song and we're, and we're going to, we're going to comb through it and and talk about it here in a moment. But again, the, your third studio album war all the time uh, was released September 16th of 2003. The album sold 74,000 copies in the first week charted at number seven on the billboard 200 so for a record with no hooks it did pretty darn good out of the gate
1: yeah yeah no it was a real it was a real moment for you know i guess i guess the genre i mean i don't know if you know we we became like sort of a poster boy for what what the kids were calling emo at the time but we're doing something pretty strange even for the genre uh, beforehand and since not a lot of bands kind of went the thursday route so um Yeah, it was a really strange, interesting moment in pop culture. And I think um, it's a testament to, you know, how great of a live band we were that we were able to sort of carry records that didn't really fit in, you know what I mean, and make them sort of make sense.
0: Right. And I mean, and you guys weren't. You know, you you look back at a lot of your peers, we'll call them, you know, Hot Water, Jimmy Eat World, Glassjaw, some of these bands, they weren't using keyboards. okay. And the synth on this particular track around this era, I really feel like it set you apart. I mean, everyone's using keyboards now. But but in that particular 20 years ago in in, in your genre, it wasn't that prevalent.
1: It wasn't very prevalent. I do have to give a shout out, though, to our friends and at the drive in. Those guys stayed at my house like way, way, way back when, you know, when we were putting out our first album, they were coming through. Uh, they toured with a band called Mapsack, a great, totally underappreciated, amazing band. I'm sure you know them, Chris. What a great band.
0: Awesome band. I actually played uh, with Blair recently in racquetball.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They were down uh, in, in South America and I filled in for hot water music. It was just us and those guys.
1: I love that. That's so good. And, and other friends there. But yeah, um, when they came and stayed at our house. Uh, We all became friends and I became friends with Jim, Jim uh, from At The Drive-In and also later Sparta. I got him into a band called Ink & Dagger who were using electronics more than keyboards, kind of like strange sampled beats and stuff. And he got me into a band called The VSS who also had uh, strange, weird industrial influences um, but then Jim, the next time I saw him, the next tour, they, they did an EP called Via, and he was pl- cutting his time between guitar and keyboards. And it made a huge impression on me of like, oh, keyboards can be used in this totally different way that, you know, than, than kind of like the bands that I grew up on, like the Cure, you know, it could be something really different. And, um, and then, you know, we started incorporating that into our sound. And then we found ourselves actually, because we're more of a romantic band, we have a lot of like Cure in us, we have a lot of smiths and stuff like that in us uh that the keyboards actually came back around to being more of like strings and and romantic key cure type stuff so mm-hmm. uh, it was a funny thing where i had a block in my mind for keyboards until i saw at the drive and dude do- Something totally different with them, and then when we incorporated them into the band, they were much more traditional. So uh, sometimes you take the long road, you know what I'm saying, to get back around. Yeah, well, and,
0: <laughs> and that's really that's really cool. You brought that up because I think lyrically, a lot of your lyrics uh, lend themselves to keyboards or synths. So I think it works. It, it, it works out well. A couple more things before we dive In uh, into the song, Jeff. Wanted to let you know that Jonah uh, Matranga from Far, uh, yeah, he was rec- he was recently on Krista Makes a podcast, and he's. Crazy credited on the record with a vocal on the eighth track steps ascending. So yeah. I just wanted to, thought that was a two worlds colliding.
1: What a huge figure in my young life. Um, I never heard anybody take the, a bunch of different styles and blend them together, you know, sort of this like hardcore and sort of alt alty more like PJ Harvey ish type stuff. And it really, it made such a big impression on me. And, and, uh, and even more so the kind of passion. You know, the passion of hardcore put into a more musical thing. It just really Yeah, he's intense. He's a great one. Yeah, yeah.
0: He's intense. Well, that's awesome. And one last thing, uh, you know, I I looked and I couldn't really find anything on Rumblefish who were credited uh, uh with with mixing the record. Is that a pseudonym for somebody? <laughs> it, or what it, is Rumblefish?
1: It is. I don't it's something um <laughs> it's, I drove myself nuts, Jeff. So golden era um of internet, let's put it that way. So Tim Gillis, who owned the studio, he went by Rumblefish for mixes sometimes. And the reason he went by Rumblefish or Slipperman or these other names is because he was like if you went on like gear sluts and other like sort of like you know, 1.5 internet type forums where everybody's talking about gear and how to use it and what to do with it and how to mix and how to do this stuff. He was sort of like a, a huge figure in that world. Wow. And so I think he enjoyed kind of like using his screen name or whatever for uh, a mix
0: engineer. <laughs> Okay. Well, I notice here that he was credited uh, on track two and four and Signals Over the Air is track four. Uh, He's credited with keyboards. And it wasn't your touring keyboardist at the time, Andrew Everding, that that played on this. So how did that come about?
1: Tim, who recorded, you know, our first three records and also our split with Envy, he is this uh, kind of tremendous drummer and keyboardist and singer, amazing recording engineer. And when I was a kid, like 16 I learned a lot about music by interning at his studio. I would, you know, how to learn how to patch and cross patch and clean tape machines and do all kind of like the traditional old school studio stuff, which I was able to use later when I, when I produced the first My Chemical Romance record and stuff like that. Um, But he was our guy, you know, and he had taught me a lot and he had sort of He's the one who came up with the nickname Tone Jeff for me because he couldn't believe how tone deaf I was. Um, <laughs> tone so, you know, Jeff. He, yeah, okay. my biggest critic as well as like my greatest champion. Um But, you know, yeah, def- definitely, okay. definitely somebody I respected a lot. And he always hated my bands growing up. And then he heard Thursday and he was, was like, what happened? You like kind of learned how to sing. He's like, you know, you're not. Freddie Mercury yet, but like, like
0: (laughs) he—he's giving you the German backhanded compliment. I get it.
1: Yeah, he was like, "But you can kind of sing now, and like whatever you've got, there's something to it." You know what I mean? Like, I, there—you've got something. It's not like you're not musical, but like you've got something, and I like it, and I'm gonna help you develop it. And so that's
0: called style, my friend. Yeah, style. On full
1: collapse, he would spend 20 hours per song with me, just in the booth singing. Him being like flat, sharp you swallowed your ass. You you did too much ass. You know what I mean? Just, just destroying me in the booth because he was like, your voice sounds so bad tunes that I need to get you to get this. Like you, I don't know what it is about the tone of your voice, but it does not take a tuning. Like you got to get closer,
0: you know? Wow. Okay. Well, that sounds like someone that pushed you, but you seem like you were open to it.
1: Well, yeah. Now in retrospect, I'm open to it. Um, (laughs) but, but on Paris and flames from, from full collapse, He took the end of the song and stacked all these ARPs and Mellotrons and all these amazing keyboards at the end of the song where it's like supposed to be this huge heavy part. And he's like stacking all these keys. And we first heard it and we was like, what did you do to our song? You destroyed it. And then we lived with it for a while. And we're like, wow, it's like actually way heavier. You know what I mean? Like, he's like, Mm. yeah, that's because I made it minor. Then I made it major. Then I made it suspended. Then I made, you know, like (laughs) you're screaming, you're screaming your head off so I can do anything because you're not singing. So if, as long as you're screaming, I can keep changing the mode of this song around you and it's gonna be awesome. Oh. That's kind of how he started like introducing keys into our band. Um, and that's how we got Andrew to start playing it. But even on the second record, you know that we did with him doing that stuff, it was still a matter of him kind of being like, "I think you need some keys here. Listen to this," and us going like, yeah, "That's pretty cool, actually," you know. So it wasn't until the end of that record when we did this song brought to you by Falling Bomb that Andrew's actually playing.
0: Very cool. Well, the track is four minutes and 10 seconds. Signals over the air. The intro, uh, the drums start this one. The snare, you know, right off the top, Jeff, the snare sounds metallic here, almost like the Saint Anger uh, snare drum from Metallica. Yeah.
1: Tucker's going to come at you for that one. No, I'm just kidding.
0: No, but when the band kicks in, the overtones from that, and what it does up against the bass and the guitars, it's killer. It yeah. like blends in. It it is very very cool. Right off the top, I was like, "Wow, that's kind of metallic." But when the guitars come in, it it blends in a way that is just it, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I I think it's um it's something we talked about in the studio at the time. We weren't talking about Saint Anger, but we were talking about uh, Snapcase and that kind of like pic- piccolo snare that they used to use. And we were like, you know, there's really a ring to it. It's quite a lot. It's got a weird vibe, but there was something cool about it. And we all said, you know, it's kind of like, it's almost like got a little bit of Steve Albini in it or something. There's just some... It's a weird sound, you know?
0: Well, I can tell you it wasn't re-EQ'd when the band came in yeah. and like gated it or something. It's yeah. still there, but it's not like hitting you over the head like it does at the top when uh, when it's by itself, it's, it's, it's very, very cool though. Uh, the first four bars are just the drums. On bar five, we're joined by a slightly overdriven guitar. And on bar eight, the bass guitar comes in to take us into verse one. what you see when you look in my direction. Incandescent corsets draw eyes tight like wires. This is how it feels calling out, but no one even hears. The signals that we send over the air, over the air, over the air, over the air.
1: This song is about so many different things. One of them is uh, body dysmorphia. One of them's um, sort of the sexual politic. And, and the other one is the commodification of like beauty standards. So I really, you know, I really wanted to talk about this, you know, the, the, the semaphores of life, the, the, the signals that we send unconsciously and that we send on purpose. And then the signals that people interpret as coming from you, even when they're not, you know what I mean? I think that people misunderstanding each other is a huge theme of, of everything that's been going on in Thursday from the beginning. And, um, I think that language is just a fascinating thing because, we have all these codes in society and the codes are different depending on who you ask. So that room that leaves us not understanding each other can hold a lot of different things. It can hold like mystery and yearning and all kinds of good things. It can hold violence. It can, you know, so there's a a lot going on in the beginning of the song with that. Yeah. That's what I was going for. I was sort of inspired by um, Fugazi's suggestion, I thought was such a beautiful piece.
0: That's why I love doing this this podcast, man. I never thought in a million years reading these lyrics that you were going to go there from where the inspiration came from. It's just so, it's so cool. On the line, this is how it feels, calling out but no one even hears. Another guitar panned off left joins in playing a beautiful counter melody to the guitar panned more center. It's not really a, a hard stereo I'm hearing here. You want to talk about a hook, that guitar that comes in is so hooky. It blends so well with the other, the other part.
1: Yeah. I love this beginning. It's, you know, we, we would have all different kinds of ideas about what a beginning of a song could be. And sometimes it would be a needle drop, like the first song on the record where it just band comes in charging all together as hard as, you know, wall of sound. This one is sort of like stacked in layers, you know, um, drums, You know, (laughs) guitar, bass, other guitars, singing, you know, just like one after the other kind of building up until the whole thing
0: explodes. Well, the closest we get to the song title in the whole song is on the line, the signals that we send over the air. Uh, You know, when we were on a major we got it crap all the time from our A and R guy. It's like the song titles don't match any of the lyrics. It, it it doesn't add up. Did you get any of that for this? Like you know they wanted to release it as a single, yeah. and it's like where's this where's this big chorus?
1: Yeah, um, they wanted to call it on the radio. Mm. <laughs> okay. And I was like, yeah, because
0: that's in the chorus.
1: I was like, you want to call the song that you're pitching to radio on the radio? I get it. I hate it though.
0: <laughs> yeah. The genius uh, label move. Oh, it just yeah. makes me cringe how many times I was sitting in a, in a meeting with these guys and they'd say something like that. You'd be like, oh.
1: <laughs> that stuff just always seems so desperate to me that it's like the antithesis of cool. And once you go there, it's like there's no it's just obvious. Everybody looks in and goes like,
0: "Oh, okay." I would always say, it "Smells like Teen Spirit." Yeah,
2: you know, yeah,
0: one of the biggest songs in you know uh, of all time. It's like, "Hey, didn't have anything to do." So, yeah, I didn't. I, I was never a fan of that argument. Something really cool here, though, in verse one, Jeff, is the over-the-air part when you repeat it at the end. It's eight bars of tension that you can feel. It's building up to where the chorus explodes, and this part only happens this one time in the song doesn't happen on the subsequent verses. You don't get that. Wow. Eight- I
1: never really thought about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and do you recall when you were writing the track? First of all, did you demo the song or did you just I really didn't have time? Right. You just no. went to the barn and recorded it. Yeah. No, we didn't demo it. Um, do you recall talking about this part? It's pretty long of a setup, but man, it's, it, it's so cool to set up for the chorus. It, this song
1: had a few different writers. I mean, we all kind of write on everything, but like the basis of it, I remember Steve had that riff for a long time, the bam, we wrote that at the same time as we wrote jet black new year, which was on an EP that came out on victory, like right before this record. And so we had this kind of just this riff, you know, it was just a riff and it didn't really go someplace that we liked, but we had that one guitar part. And, um, I was just I got Steve to teach it to me and I started I started I kind of wrote the chorus the ba na 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 and kind of like had some idea for what I wanted the drum beat to be and then I wrote the banana na 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 like so I wrote those two parts and then to me it was like well that's the song you know what I mean we have got the verse that Steve wrote and we got the chorus that I wrote and you know you guys go figure it out together and i'll just hang out in my little room here eating they made a cake every day at the barn so i like remember i ate (laughs) so much fucking cake it was so fresh and so delicious and i was like eating the cake and i came back and they just had the whole thing like they had written the whole thing and i i just accepted it you know what i mean i didn't think about the fact that there was the eight bars of tension before the chorus but you know i did notice that the chorus hit really hard because there was that tension
0: that magical cake uh, in a farmhouse uh, in the middle of massachusetts who yeah. knew yeah. and you talk about hitting hard that's exactly what i have uh, written down here in my notes uh, jeff band hits hard on chorus one drums are an onslaught with the bass and big stereo guitars when you say my name i want to split it from your lips and hide like whispers in the rain when you say my name when you say it i want to stop it in your lungs and collect all your blood to put in the radio
1: (laughs) yeah yeah that's quite a strange chorus for a a single (laughs) but um
0: uh... (laughs) it's it's very bizarre and, and and please enlighten me what's going on here
1: i really wanted to capture that feeling of hearing somebody call you by your name that you're like, don't talk to me. Don't say my name. You don't, you don't know me. You don't know what I want. You don't know who I am. Um, and so that was really like that feeling of like being addressed by somebody that you don't care for. Um, and then so like you know, I want to, I want to split it from your lips. Like I just, I, I want to take it from, I don't want you to be able to say it anymore. And then I, it makes me want to hide and not be known, you know, the hiding like whispers in the rain, kind of like muted. And then the more aggressive one, which is like, just take all your blood and put it on the radio, put like, make you, make you feel exposed, <laughs> you know, make you take everything that matters to you and cheapen it. And yeah, I think there was a little bit of a, um, uh, an anti-mainstream uh, culture sentiment in the chorus there. it's just like every you make everything cheap. You know what I mean? You make it.
3: I, I hate it. <laughs> hey everybody, we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but we got lots more with Jeff Rickley coming right up after the break. Looking
0: to elevate your music career? Distrokid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with the Spotify Canvas Generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, Artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP, slash Demakes. That's distrokid.com, slash VIP, slash Demakes.
3: Now, back to the show.
0: Was the lead vocal doubled here in the chorus? Absolutely. And if it was, it... Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. It would say it's it's a pretty good blend, though. You know, I, I feel it rubbing a little bit, but it seems pretty tight with the lead vocal uh, on the line. I want to split it from your lips. The guitar panned off left goes off on a cool octave part for the next couple lines, and then uh, on when you say there's a call and response of when you say and my name when you say it. Uh, is that your lead guitarist Tom Keeley on those on those screams there?
1: Yeah, I think that's Tom. I believe that's Tom. Um, Sometimes we would sort of like do a shootout style where everybody would take a crack at it. And then the mix engineer wouldn't tell us who won. And sometimes it was a lot harder to tell who was who than we thought it would be.
0: (laughs) Well, we're going to get there with the last chorus, which just baffles me. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But did you record this record to Pro Tools? Tape. Yeah. It was done to tape. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I can tell. And if it was done to Pro Tools, you weren't copying, pasting, because I went to Chorus <laughs> yeah. 2 and listened in, and the backing screams are not the same, which that's right. refreshing to me. I don't like when stuff is just co- just copy and pasted. On the last uh, couple lines here, the guitar panned off left. Again, riffs on a really cool octave part before we get back into a four-bar reintro where we get drums, bass, that center guitar, and now there's a synth part uh that's loud in the mix and that's what i love about it it's not like you're shy like you know we've put organ on stuff in my band before where i'm like let's hear the b3 parts like we don't have an organ player it's like it's just gonna be a layer i'm like but but i want to hear the part the organ sounds so good and you guys weren't shy here man it's it's in the mix and it sounds awesome
1: there's so much that you can't do on record that you can do live. And so my thought is like, well, let's make up for it with stuff that we won't do live that we do on the record. You know what I mean? Like let's have them just be sort of like slightly different things. And the great thing is like, nobody ever noticed. I mean, every so often somebody will be like, I noticed you did this thing. And it's like, it's oh, really nice. <laughs> that somebody actually noticed, most people think it's exactly the same. They'll be like, you guys sound just like the record. And I'll think like, wow. Okay. Cool. I guess. But I've also played this song live where I could swear I could hear the keyboard. And I remember that we're not we don't have a keyboard player that we tour with anymore. So it's just like if you get it stuck, if you get it in your head, it just kind of becomes part of the song. You know what I mean? Um, Right. But I love yeah, I love those octaves that Tom plays in the chorus. He's a really inventive, imaginative harmonic player. He, You know, harmonizes stuff that you don't expect. And I think it's partly that he's like 90% deaf in one of his ears. Oh gosh. And so what he hears in that ear from the, the amp o- often has these kind of like wild overtones and harmonies and stuff. So he kind of like will hear it, like literally hear it first and think, what is that? And then he'll start looking for what the overtones are that he's hearing. And then that becomes part of the, the way he plays. And I think it's why he's such a beautiful player and why he's had such a influence even outside of our genre. You know, um, Carrie from Deaf Heaven, a great, great um, sort of black metal shoegaze band, said that he, you know, learned how to play guitar by learning Tom's parts on Full Collapse. And I can see that's it, you rad. know what I mean? This strange yeah. sense of melody that's not quite right. Uh, it's very Tom.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, this could have been all downstrokes, real big uh, stereo guitars as, as they started out before he started meandering. A lot of times lead guitarists will do stuff like that to me that's distracting to the lead vocal or, or just, you know, it's kind of look at me. I'm flashy here. It works brilliantly. I love absolutely love what he does there. Uh, that four bar reintro takes us right into
2: verse two. Don't even fit into your own skin it's getting tighter smaller say-
0: Is this how it feels when you don't even fit into your own skin and it's getting tighter? Every day I'm getting smaller. If I keep holding my breath, I'm going to disappear.
1: Yeah, that's more on leaning into the kind of like, when you internalize the world's vision of you and you start to wonder, like, do I fit a beauty standard? Do I do I even fit my own body? Do I you know that that second verse is a lot like now when I sing it, I'm like, man, I was really putting some stuff out there. You know what I mean? Uh,
2: mm. <laughs> so,
1: Right.
0: And did you know at the time really what you were writing about? I say that with a straight face. I've had yeah. guys say before that that it'll be six months, a year later, where they finally realize what they didn't realize what they were writing about, and it, it's kind of fully realized now when they reflect.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. I think like I wrote this, and like I said, it was like really like suggestion fugazi. Like I was like really kind of like this is you know this is what uh, beauty standards do to women or something, you know. And now I'm like, oh man, this is like way more personal than. Than that <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this song's like yeah. totally, totally about me. It has nothing to do with that. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I'm glad you said that because I, I, I wouldn't have known. You could have said it wasn't about you, but that's that's interesting. How yeah. how your your inspiration is something other, but yet when you reflect on it later, like well, I was kind of right about myself there. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure.
0: That is awesome. Well, that synth runs all the way through verse two, uh, adds a really awesome texture. The guitar panned off left is playing that awesome counter melody from verse one again throughout this whole verse. Uh, and on the last line, there's no eight bars of tension. We just go straight into chorus two. And I love it there. Yes. I, I wouldn't want that eight bars. It's gotta go into that chorus there. And it again, I think because of that, it hits just as hard as chorus one. When you say- same basic instrumentations and uh, lyrics as chorus one, different backing vocal screams on the when you say and when you say it uh, here, I, I went back and a b that, these were definitely not copied and pasted uh, from chorus one at this point in the song you know, there's a lot that you're saying here already, but did you think of maybe changing up a word on the back half or did, did you want to keep the uh, the idea as what it was?
1: Yeah, often I did, often I like to make things more obscure the second time around or make it a, a reversal or some, you know, there's a lot of storytelling devices that you can use in later elements in the lyrics but I thought that this one I should, you know, there were still more parts to come, so many more parts to come that I wanted to kind of keep the chorus as this very solid kind of set in stone, like, you know what it is here it comes, you know what I mean? And, and it would be this commentary on the rest of the song. I really love, uh, I had read this this uh, thing about Motown and how backup vocals were the community. So, um, you know, the singer is the individual and then the backups were kind of like society's commentary on what you were saying and stuff like that. So a lot of Thursdays, other songs, the backups are are saying other things. Um, But this song was kind of, I thought this idea of uh, it being mirrored back through another lens for uh, something that's about, you know, commodification and co-opting of passion and turning it into, you know, sort of the same old thing. I thought that would be interesting to have it be just exactly the same words shouted back. Um, So that's kind of how I got there with, with this song.
0: Okay. Well, I love that part. And coming off a chorus too, we get a post chorus, I'm calling it. And uh, this might be my favorite part of the song. I love it. This part is like prog rock. It's killer. That synth is nice and loud again. A new guitar lick comes in that's insanely catchy. And is there another synth ghosting that guitar part? Oh,
1: I don't know. I'll have to go listen. Uh, If there is, it's not something I picked up.
0: Well, if it is, it's very buried or maybe maybe the riff is doubled. It sounds full, but it sounds like there's something like a little chorusy rub there, so I'm I'm not sure.
1: I I wouldn't be totally surprised because later on there was like a a song that we did for our live DVD that was like a, a different song that we did with Tim Gillis. And he I noticed when I listened on headphones that he was lightly putting all my melodies. Uh, behind me on another keyboard and it was just making my voice sound richer nobody noticed that there was keyboards there he was just burying this this line behind it so i think he was already doing stuff like that so i might go back and listen it. Um, i wouldn't be surprised at all yeah
0: <laughs> i love i love stuff like that that's the kind of stuff that just gets you know gets gets me going i like the little yeah. little just those textures like on your voice you would you would never hear it but you you feel it you know and it sounds back weird. When we all had time and
1: budgets. So you know what i'm saying when music was like yep <laughs>
0: That's the name of my new record, Time and Budgets. Thanks, Jeff. (laughs) It's perfect. Um, (laughs) Post chorus, call it a post chorus one, even though it's after uh, chorus two. There's nowhere to hide. They stole the love from our lives to put the sex on the radio. There's nowhere to hide. They stole the love from our lives to put the sex on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was about to say it's pretty straightforward, but maybe maybe that's just the way that I think. Well, no, I
0: mean, I, I think it. I think it's. I think it's really tying up what you're saying in the chorus.
1: Yeah, I was really pushing on that theme. I think um, that was sort of the simplest way that I could put it. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that that can be a good. A good hook can be when you say it more simply, you know, a verse can expound on things. Often I think a bridge is a a wrinkle that you can put in the story. You know what I mean? Something that either deepens it or complicates it.
0: Well, I love this next part. And this is really, you know, uh, Tucker really shines uh, rhythmically. What happens here in, I'm calling it an eight bar musical interlude to set up for the bridge. It's just hi-hat and synth for the first two bars. On bar three, uh, there's strums of the guitar joined on bar five. The drums are back along with bass guitar and another guitar panned off left to take us into the bridge. two lines are so crazy because they're two completely different textures guitar-wise. The first line is, if I keep holding my breath, all of this will fade away. And then the next line, if you keep driving, will be lying in the wreck. And the whole guitar arpeggio thing, the texture on that second line, it's like a different song almost. I love what happens there. I'm going to continue on with the lyrics, Jeff. Changing the shape. Folding like an envelope. You say envelope. I used to get made fun of that as a kid, and I changed the envelope. (laughs) To keep each other in, shattered glass, broken looks, and mascara gets washed away by windshield wiper blades. Safe. Safe. I could never write a lyric like that. That kind of imagery—the mascara gets washed away by windshield wiper blades—and I feel if I did write a lyric like that, my band would laugh at me. But like, what's going on here?
1: So this is like it becomes a little bit self-reflexive. The rest of the song is is treating the co-opting as like an external force, like a major labeler or a radio supervisor or like MTV guy or like an ad exec or something is doing this thing. And the bridge is about turning it around and saying like, maybe you're doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe, maybe you're the one that's like cheapening what you believe in. Um, and okay. that, so it's kind of this like self reflexive like talking about the success of understanding in a car crash in a way, taking this incredibly personal event that happened in my life. And, you know, in some ways feeling like you just like totally like let it get exploited and you like, you know, cheapen this like thing that happened in your life. And so, that you know the imagery in there—the mascara and the uh, washed away by windshield wiper blades—it's kind of, it's kind of. I wanted to tie back in to the theme of of what it is, you know, this song about beauty standards and kind of bring it all back around to talking about the glamorization of something. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's the the wreck and the glamour all tied up together, mm-hmm. and and saying like, if you keep going this way. Like you're gonna become a different person, and and you're gonna change the people who this happened to in like a an uncomfortable way.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's very very cool to to hear. This is where your head's at with this. I never, there's sometimes I'm good, man. I'm like, I'll read a lyric and I'm like, I had a pretty good idea, but man, this is but uh, pretty, pretty left the center of what I would have thought. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those first two lines with what the, the the guitar parts changing.
1: That's one of my favorite things we've ever written. And when we play it live, it just feels like it's so different. Yeah. It's really, really, there's that sense of the, you know, what you were talking about before with the the tension and the, the kind of like building, it sort of strips all the way back and really makes you wait. You know, like Tucker goes to sort of a ticking clock, hi hat, the guitar starts arpeggiating to kind of accentuate it. And then it starts like, yes. you know, it's like, it's like building, building, you really expect it to hit back into the chorus, but instead it just sort of like, it blows up.
0: <laughs> That's when all hell breaks loose. Yeah, exactly. Okay, starting at the changing the shape line to right. the end. Uh, great syncopated drum rhythm here. Heavy, uh, huge stereo guitars, bass guitar, and the synth. And when you say safe, safe, there's another four-bar release after the onslaught that just happened. And those big stereo guitars that ring out, what a way to set up for Chorus 3 you know, it's kind of like a relief. Uh, You know, the the tension's not there. It's the the bubble burst. But then when the chorus hits, it feels massive again.
1: Yeah, it it serves a totally different purpose the last time. The last chorus is a a relief. You know, it's familiar. It's not so syncopated. You know, it kind of like it makes that um, intro that it makes it feel more like, yeah, that's that could almost be the one even though it's a pickup which is something that's really um you know it's a str- it's another strange thing about the song is that it really hits on the pickup rather than on the one and yes so there's you know there's a lot going on like uh, war all the time is really a tricky record you know i think uh every time i see somebody try to cover one of the songs on war All the time I'm like okay yeah have fun <laughs> if you can figure out how to do some of this stuff on here because we spent days arguing about like no you the downbeat really happens here. No, the downbeat is actually here on this measure. And you have to start thinking of that measure as like the two, even though it's the one. You know, there was all kinds of discussions like that.
0: I've talked about that before, <laughs> Jeff, on this show. Yeah, you, sometimes the chorus uh, hits while the pre-chorus is still happening. Right. Sometimes it happens right on the downbeat, and sometimes it happens after. Uh, and and that all plays into the lyric and, and whatever else you're trying to get across. You know, coming out of this part, that, that syncopated drum part in the bridge, it's so heavy that you needed that release to come down so the chorus hits big again. I, I yeah. really love the dynamics in this song.
1: Yeah, no, I really I really love this song too. It's like one of the things I'm most excited about getting out on tour for the 20th anniversary of War all the time and getting to play this song every night. You know, it's like at the time, it was still just so weird. And so like when we first toured this record, it didn't feel like there were any hits or big songs on it it felt like you know what did you guys do you made a really crazy record after full collapse which everybody loved and now all these years later they just feel inevitable you know what i mean they feel like they've been there forever and that they make sense and that like like you said you know you get to the last course and it's sort of like the same chorus you've been hearing as kind of an explosive thing is now it sort of cruises, you know what I mean? It feels a little bit more accessible.
0: <laughs> well, maybe that's the reason and maybe that's the answer to the question here. So chorus three, same lyric, but we get the backing call and response right off the top. So when you say you get a when you say in my name, when you say my name, you say here instead of when you say it. Is that you ghosting there, though? Because yeah. it doesn't sound like Tom. Yeah, that's me in the last one. Yeah. When you say, when you
2: say my name When you say my name Wanna split it from your lips I like whispers in the rain When you say, when you say my name Wanna stop it in your lungs And collect all of your blood To put in the radio
0: So the intensity here is nowhere near what it is in chorus one and chorus two. You'd think by chorus three, you'd want the biggest scream and here you, you regress and pull back. It's awesome. But why?
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I think we felt that the, the climax of the song was the, the, the bridge where it's really like hitting hard and any attempt to go up from there, we couldn't get it above that bridge. So Rather than pull the bridge back, we rethought what the what the chorus was supposed to do, you know. And and the chorus is like takes a little bit more of a like, you know. Now it is the song on the radio. Now it is smoothed out. Now it is like, you know. And and that's our version of
0: that. It's not, you know. It's still not like all the way to. So that was was that kind of calculated and thought about is what you're saying. That's interesting. Yeah. By the a lot end of times, guys will be like, guys will be like, eh, I don't know. I think they just, you know. Pfft. Flew in that. I know you did this to tape, but they're like, "Hey, this just probably just flew that in and picked it that. That's the one they liked. That's what it ended up being in the mix." You're like, "Oh, but you're, you're kind of saying there was a little bit of thought here."
1: Yeah. The biggest thing for Thursday is you know challenges. Challenges come up. We can't make something work. We can't figure out why we can't make it work. And so we have to rethink the whole philosophy of a part is sort of the way that I've always approached it. And then you you use those challenges to become like the big ideas, you know. And that that to me is a great way to work and the way i encouraged my chemical romance to work was you know when you find a challenge you can't overcome like okay you've just unlocked the song you know what i mean now where do we go from here Because, because the greatness is is in the room now you know can we catch it and put it on the tape like now that we have a problem we can't solve or like in the good era of the song, you know what I mean. This is going to happen now.
0: What a great quote! I mean, what you just said is like well, <laughs> I've never put it in those in those kind of words. That's that's really cool. Uh, off of chorus three, we get the second post chorus in the song. Same basic instrumentation and lyrics, and then we get an eight bar
2: outro. In the radio. They stole the love From a lesson Put the sax On the ring There's nowhere To hide They stole the love
0: The peaks and valleys of this song. I love how this song ends. It's just drums, synth, and that super catchy guitar lick. Nice and loud, that hook. And the lyric is, yeah, that's where we hide. The love and lies and sex on the radio. And radio is by itself a very dry, in-your-face vocal. Makes it sound personal. Uh, Great way to end the song.
1: Yeah, no, we were really... Very happy to kind of bring this up and then back land it back down. You know what I mean? We wanted this song to have a sort of sense of a sense of resolve that felt true to the beginning of the song, so you could get to the end and be like, "I get that song." You know what I mean? There are other songs uh, that are very unlike that on the record. You know, for the workforce drowning starts with a bang and it ends with a super tight bang. You know what I mean? It's like we've we've tried to really bookend songs on this record, and there are even some songs on this record like "Asleep in the Chapel" that the opening riff is the same as the closing riff and it never gets (laughs) the whole rest of the song is a totally different song. Yeah. But we have these two little riffs at the beginning and the end, just to kind of remind you of each other. It shouldn't work. Yeah, it's your, it shouldn't work. It's your you
0: know? yeah, it's your it's your bookend. It's the same song. We brought the riff back. Yeah, it's okay. See, well, that's awesome, Jeff. I want to thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, your your band is 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 such an inspiration to to so many bands. Uh, it was it was a pleasure breaking this song down. I know you're out on the road for a couple more weeks with Rival Schools and many eyes. If you can tell Walter, uh, it's been a minute from Rival Schools that I said hello. And uh, what else is coming up for Thursday? What do you what do you got going on this year? Um, I think
1: we're going to Europe and doing a bunch of festivals. I think we may get a chance to go to South America for the first time. It's something we're trying to figure out, you know, I mean, for bands of, you know, our size, which is like not world dominating, but not like, not like totally unheard of either. It's a, you know, (laughs) the economies of some of these decisions are so hard to figure out. So, um, you know, we're trying to figure it out because we, we want to see everywhere. We want to bring our music anywhere that we can, you know?
0: Well, I'll warn you, if you haven't been to South America, uh, you, luck is on your side in the sense that you've been a band for as long as you have. Uh, we were around for about 15 years, less than Jake went down there in probably 07, 08, and it was insane. So okay. get ready.
1: <laughs> okay. I don't even know what that could mean, but I'm excited to find out. And Chris... Um,
0: it, it, they'll eat, they're going to eat you alive. It's going to be probably some, of the, probably some of the best shows you've ever played. <laughs> Incredible. But uh, man... Th- Thank you so much. Hey, thank
1: you for having me. Also, I just want to say, like, it's so cool to, to engage with somebody who goes so deep on, on stuff that you've been working on. You know, it's really like, I'm really glad you do this. It's really cool, Chris. Thanks. War,
2: all of the time, in the shadow of the New York sky, up too fast, falling apart, like the ashes of a
3: Hey, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that awesome conversation with Jeff Rickley. But don't go anywhere. We got lots more Krista makes a podcast coming right up after a few words from our sponsors.
4: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
3: Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know.
0: Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to make a podcast, Email your best song and a short bio to ban you might not know at gmail.com. This week's feature artist is Hungover, a pop rock band from Orlando, Florida, who've been described as too pop for rock and too rock for pop. They have a brand new album on Smart Punk Records called When It Touches the Heart, Everything Resolves. Here's a snippet of their song, Shake It Off.
2: with Chris and Chris.
3: So Chris, I love that episode. Jeff was extremely personable and I think it was a Chris to makes a podcast first. That's the first time I ever heard about a band baking a cake every day (laughs) when they're in the studio and then eating said cake. Yeah, well, the guys
0: in Thursday are are, are still uh, thin. I wouldn't recommend that for less than Jake. So keep the cake (laughs) out of the studio. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah, you know, how many times have you heard Chris? This was the last song we wrote for the record. It's like, it it
3: happens so often, right? 50 times on this podcast, maybe? (laughs) Is that (laughs) a one out of every four episodes? Somebody says that, and that's the song that becomes, you know, for Thursday, they have a lot of popular songs, but this was one of the more popular ones. This was the single. So uh, yeah, I love that story. Um, Hey, one thing that he said that I thought was really interesting I know this is a very <laughs> minute detail of what he said, but there are lots of little, little bite sized things I picked out. I loved when he talked about the thing he read about the Motown recordings, about the backup vocals sort of being the community mm. singing back at you. I've never thought about that before, but that's such a cool way to approach and think about backup vocals.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, because, you know, a lot of those. Uh, old 50s and 60s songs, they were they were bore out of jumping rope on the sidewalk and stomping and singing, you know, and and I and I've never thought about what he said either. That makes that makes so much
3: sense. Yeah, that's really cool thing to think about. I also think it's really cool to think about Jeff referred to it as a strange and interesting moment in pop culture. But that moment When Thursday's album, now they're a band that doesn't sound like a mainstream band. This album comes out, you said it to him, sold 74,000 copies (laughs) in its first week. It was number seven on the Billboard charts. What a perfect timing. I mean, for Thursday and for that world of music in general, you wouldn't think 10 years before or 10 years after that an album that sounds the way this does, an album that sounds this raw, you know, has such like influences of like hardcore and things like that would that would become this mainstream it was such a cool thing yeah
0: and the fact that they you know the label sent him back into the studio to go record something more radio friendly and this isn't radio friendly by any means from what was going on uh, at commercial radio in 2003 although the song reached number 30 on the billboard uh, alternative songs chart at the time but uh you know, a lot, a lot of things going on here. At the time, as I mentioned, everyone was getting signed to major labels. Here, they're on a major, and they just—they were kind of like looking at it. This is just the next record. They hired Salville in the way to produce it. They didn't go with some big uh, Hollywood bigwig, and, and and I respect that.
3: I love those stories, and I've heard them several times on here, and I've heard them from you relating to less the Jake, those stories about being in, like, some sort of meeting with people from a major label and these suggestions that make you cringe. Mm. <laughs> you know, I love hearing stuff like that. I-, I know you've experienced it several times.
0: Yeah, you know, it- it's it's... <laughs> You know, sometimes, and you've talked about it, the unsolicited opinion, you know, it's like we didn't, oh, and yeah. that just kills me. And you'd have some of these people oh. that at the time were younger than I am now, but they, to me, they were dinosaurs. These people were in their 40s and they're trying to tell me what, you know, what sounds good on my record. It's like, I'm not having it. And, you know, um, <laughs> that, that's part about rubbing <laughs> elbows and, and doing business on the majors, I guess. But uh, that, that, that made me laugh at some of the, uh, you know, the label wanting to name the song on the radio. And he's
3: like, I right. get it, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I, <laughs> you just said it. There is nothing that irks me more in this world than unsolicited opinions or advice or, or comments. Like if I ask for it, yeah, sure, I'm asking for it. When someone tells me their opinion about what I should do and I didn't ask for it, oh, man, do I get pissed off about that. <laughs> but uh, also, hey, you said you're an envelope guy. Envelope versus envelope? Well, I say envelope now. I don't say envelope anymore, but (laughs) I I, I grew up in Michigan. I remember moving to Florida, and I got laughed out of the room when I would say envelope. Do you say envelope? No, I'm from Pittsburgh. I say envelope. Envelope. (laughs) Envelope. Give me that envelope. Um, Also, Chris, I know you've experienced this, and Jeff said this too, but it's interesting playing an album. You've been doing album anniversary shows, but in his case, playing these songs 20 years later, back when the album first comes out or maybe within the first few years the songs are new and they feel like whatever they feel like then but then when you play them 20 years later it's a whole other thing and it feel he's the word he used is the songs felt inevitable mm. i liked when he said that it was he kind of said it in passing but yeah these songs were going to happen and now with this much time to look back and play them again they make sense you know did you yeah. do you have that feeling like when you play hello rockview on that tour did you have that feeling like these songs they, they really make sense yeah you know?
0: absolutely this the songs were basted in years of memories you know we've talked mm-hmm. we talk about that all the time and in in here these guys got 20 21 years of memories since this record has been released and their fans have now grown up to appreciate the lyrics they were writing you know back then I was five to eight to 10 years older than most of of our fans. They hadn't went through those divorces yet or some of
3: the things that you start to go through in your mid to late twenties. So that that was very relatable. Once again, this has happened a few times, but it was one of those examples of he's writing and then he's realizing that later on that, Oh, I thought I was writing about something, but I was actually writing Mm -hmm. about something personal about myself or whatever. And I've experienced that many times. I'm sure most songwriters do. You go into it. Maybe you have like a topic that you want to write about or something or something inspired you. But then in the end, when you look back, you're like, oh. I was writing up myself. Yeah. I, <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, you know. for sure. I love that. And I,
0: I, as I told Jeff, I had no idea uh, where these song lyrics were going. It was total, total, total yeah. left of center. Hey, I want to thank everybody out there that listens each week. Uh, thanks to everyone that's part of our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. Over 5,000 members and counting. Uh, head over there and uh, join if you haven't. And we also have a Krista Makes a Podcast. Instagram page now that Chris you're taking care of that you're doing a great job tell the listeners about it
3: yeah it's Chris to makes a podcast on Instagram people wanted video and we're not going to release the whole things as video because I don't know there's a lot of editing that goes go into this thing I like to put the clips into the songs and stuff but I like to pick out a little piece, and you know that I'll have a good Jeff clip. Maybe I'll put the maybe I'll put out the the cake clip <laughs> this week to promote Jeff. All all the serious stuff you guys talked about about the radio song. We'll put that cake clip out there this week. I think that'll get people uh, psyched to listen to this episode. I love it. Again, thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in. I Want to thank this week's
0: guest, Mr. Jeff Rickley from Thursday, and we'll catch you next week.
3: Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip podcast.
2: Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute.
3: What's the name of that podcast?
2: That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a a little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all.
3: Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from uh, niche music podcasts that, that you either love, want to love, or hate.
0: Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense
2: them down to an hour to two hours a week.
3: So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot. And listen to Axe Grind Podcast.